The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, March 4th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. On Sunday, National Security Advisor John Bolton was on CNN and Face the Nation, and it was on Face the Nation when he was asked to explain the failure of the North Korean summit. You know, the summit that just failed. Here was his answer. Well, I don't consider the summit a failure. I consider it a success defined as the president protecting and advancing American national interest. Uh, There was extensive preparation for this uh, meeting, uh, extensive discussions between the president and Kim Jong-un. And the issue really was whether North Korea was prepared to accept what the president called the big deal which is denuclearized entirely uh, under a definition the president handed to Kim Jong-un and uh, have the potential for an enormous economic uh, future uh, or try and do something less than that, which was unacceptable to us. So the president uh, held firm to his view. He deepened his relationship with Kim Jong-un. I don't view it as a failure at all when American national interests are protected. And still and still I kept listening. I continued on. Why do I do it to myself? Well, I did understand his point, though I did from the moment he began speaking, that the real failure would have been a bad agreement. True, that would have been a worse failure. Because if success is defined as an agreement that saw North Korea giving up its nuclear technology, and you did not get that agreement, you failed to get that agreement, you didn't achieve success, there is a word, a general catch-all term for that phenomena. And that word rhymes with flailure. I actually agree with Bolton. Well, on a couple things. One, mustaches are macho. Two, it's good that the president came out of there without anything signed. Because I'd say there is no way that Kim was going to sign anything that was good for the U.S. or good for the peninsula or really bad for Kim. That is the thing about this negotiation. Good for us and the South Koreans is bad for Kim. It is necessarily a win-lose situation. If I were advising Kim, I'd say, you got to keep those nukes because I'm rooting for the U.S. and the South Koreans in this one. I'm thinking he's got to lose the nukes. So this is what we call a win-lose situation. You hear so much more about the win-win situations, but most situations are win-lose situations. The slate of NBA games tonight will be win-lose situations. They're just not explicitly mentioned as such. It's a little like inside-the-box thinking, which is the vast majority of the thinking. But if this is the new success, not doing something extra, extra dumb, then I await the stream of press releases. President Trump didn't call any additional countries shitholes today. And one country that was on the shithole list might be downgraded to turd cup. Donald Trump did not declare a war on Chad. Though Donald Trump did call Stormy Daniels horse face, he did not insult Karen McDougal's face today. Success! Donald Trump does excuse the Russian election meddling and the Saudi Khashoggi chopping, and he takes Kim Jong-un's version of Otto Warmbier's death as gospel. But let us note that so far, Donald Trump has not retweeted Taj Jackson about Michael's innocence. It is all one giant ball of success from this White House, which has not done plenty of awful, awful things that nobody even talks about. And you know what? I'll take it.
On the show today, I spiel about the longest speech of the Trump administration, which also marks the longest time that I spent asking myself the same question, when is this guy going to wipe the sweat off his upper lip? But first, do you like your bears fancy and your gorillas ugly? Well, then you just might be a multinational cyber criminal enthusiast. An opponent, probably an opponent, I would guess. Well, this interview is for you because John Carlin is the former assistant attorney general for national security. And he's here to talk about his new book, Dawn of the Code War, America's Battle Against Russia, China and the Rising Global Cyber Threat. John P. Carlin is a kind of a cop, a kind of a cyber detective, or maybe you can think of him as a zookeeper because while with the Justice Department and the FBI, he fought the ugly gorilla and tried to wrestle the fancy bear. He is out with a new book called Dawn of the Code War, America's Battle Against Russia, China, and the Rising Global Cyber Threat. Thanks for coming on, John. Thank you. So let's start with a scene. For me, it's a uh, role play. For you, it's not. Because we'll set it in the Oval Office, and you're briefing the president on the Sony hacks, right? This actually happened? It did. Okay, so I'm Obama, and I'm asking you, so uh, John, the, the movie we're talking about, I love that Seth Rogen, what's the movie about? And he actually asked you this, right? He's, he actually asked you, please tell me the plot of this movie. Well, you had to start that way. It was surreal. The only time in my experience, you know, you're going into the situation room, you're usually talking about a serious terrorist or other threat, and you start by trying to give a plot summary of a movie about a bunch of pot-smoking journalists. <laughs> and does he say, sounds funny? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think everyone laughed a little bit just at the uh, situation. Yeah, the other the thing that happened, it, yeah. And, yeah, and in, in preparation for it, we uh, all around the Christmas holiday, me, the director of the FBI, the attorney general, we'd meet each morning to go over threats. And we all had to watch, watch the interview. And we played a clip of it, uh, which is another thing I will not, I will not forget. And if, if you've seen it or your listeners have seen it, it's not an easy movie to summarize because it doesn't make a whole a whole lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. This was in peak, uh, you know, Rogan drug haze uh, form. But why were the Sony hacks important? Why were they a watershed in doing what you did? Well, you know, a couple different things. One, today, to this day, when I go around talking to audiences in the United States and around the world, it is the hack that more people remember than any other, with the possible exception now of our, the, the Russians did in our election. And there are two lessons, you know, I wish we learned better at the time, which was number one, boy, I can tell you, you know, war gamed out for 25, 30 years. What's it going to look like if a rogue nuclear armed nation tries to attack the United States through cyber means? And we never thought it would be about a Hollywood movie, right? That yeah. is not the sector. And what we realized in responding to that is, well, this isn't critical infrastructure. It's not our electricity. It's not our water. It, you know, as much as I like the movies, but it is an attack on a core American value, what it is to be in the United States. And that's the right to express your opinion. And if we don't respond as a national security threat, you know, with the full, with the full apparatus, then we are going to be at risk in the future of other countries using this method. And I wish we'd done that even more because, you know, fast forward, the Russians were certainly watching and they followed that playbook, right? They didn't attack the actual election machinery in 2016. They didn't attack what made it work. Instead, they 
used a third party. They dumped embarrassing emails. And what they attacked was our democracy itself. Okay, so there's the there's the security in terms of a private business. But I really want to talk about state actors because for much of your time, that's who you were up against. How many meetings did you have with Robert Mueller where you were in the same room touching these? I mean, was this almost an everyday um, occurrence for you? Yeah, it was. And I'll say, you know, before I went over to work for uh, the relatively anonymous at the time, Bob Mueller, when he was merely director of the FBI, no one really knew his name, I, I was a criminal prosecutor and I worked with a criminal FBI squad. So we did criminal cases. And I never saw what happened on the national security side. You know, an agent would occasionally switch squads. They'd disappear behind a locked, secured compartment door, and I never saw him again until I went over to be uh, Mueller's chief of staff, and the door opened. And one of the things we saw and he asked, had asked me to look at, along with another group there, is, hey, what should we be doing on the national security threat picture side? And it became clear that there was an amazing intelligence collection being done. You know, at the time, people said you can never figure out who's at the other end of the keyboard. It's just, you know, a pair of anonymous hands, right? Mm-hmm. But they had a giant Drumbotron screen, like going to a movie theater, and you could watch on the screen in real time. When I say watch, I mean really watch. They had a graphic user I- interface, and we watched China in particular hop into places like universities, go to companies, and then we watched billions of dollars worth of trade secrets, trade negotiation strategies, intellectual property flow out of the United States. It's what the former head of national security agency, Keith Alexander, called the largest transfer of wealth in human history. Yeah. So while watching it, you know, was like incredible intelligence feed, it did not feel like success. Uh, It was clear we needed to change approach. And so in addition to getting the intelligence threats, one of the things the director was driving at the time was how do we change our approach so that we go from watching to disrupting? So what do you think of the new threat or perceived threat and now there is some action being taken against the, you know, giant conglomerate telecommunication equipment, Huawei. Arrest was made in Canada. The concern is that they will, if, if these phones and equipment are bought throughout the West, they can have uh, hardware in them that's sending information back to Chinese state actors. Yeah, there's a couple uh, different reasons why I think you're seeing so much concern by not just the United States government, but its allies across uh, the world when it comes to Huawei. Number one, they were just flouting the law when it came to uh, sanctions that have been imposed. So these, the idea here is to keep the proliferation of certain types of technology and weapons out of the hands of states that might use them for bad purposes, right? And one of the series of charges, um, and this is the one that got the CFO uh, arrested in Canada, says they were deliberately evading those sanctions when it came to Iran. Number two is theft of trade secrets. Mm-hmm. And so another set of charges, these out of Seattle, say they were stealing trade secrets from T-Mobile, uh, actually, about a new uh, robot design. And number three, to your point, is this is the same company that's setting up the global infrastructure for the world in terms of how devices communicate with each other. So not just it's not just like your phone company where they could listen to your calls. The next technology called 5G is a way of getting faster and faster wireless uh, communication so devices can talk to each other. The cities of the future, many of them are trying to build out on 5G. So your cars and your traffic lights, everything's using this same 
backbone or infrastructure. And so the fear is, if this is a company that evades sanctions, that steals trade secrets, that's responsive to intelligence uh, taskings, requests by the Chinese government, then that's uh, then we're setting up a worldwide problem. And so the time to confront that is now. And I think that's why you're seeing criminal cases, uh, not just here, but in places like Poland. And you're seeing countries ranging from Australia to New Zealand to the UK reconsider whether they want to use Huawei equipment. And uh, the uh, the former director of the uh, FBI, Comey, said that, uh, you know, their, their tactics at the time, too, were like a gorilla going around your house. You know, they weren't real subtle as a as a burglar. Has China tried to mess with the fundaments of democracy to the extent the Russians have our democracy? You know, we just had this, uh, the worldwide threat briefing where the mm-hmm. leaders of the intelligence community talk about what the top threats are. And they said that they saw signs not just of Russia, but also China taking steps to interfere with the election. I haven't seen the same tradecraft, though, you know, of the Russians using $100 million campaigns and millions of millions of dollars to put up fake identities to influence in the favor of one party or to hack into a campaign and then release the information to influence. We definitely saw, have seen China hack into the campaigns before, but it seems like more for intelligence purposes. When China's tried to influence, it's been more through paid influence campaigns where there are foreign agents who don't properly register as such. So I don't know whether we'll see a change in that. No, actually, the way I met the the first time I met the I'm a career guy, and the first time I met the incoming officials from the Obama administration was to tell the Obama campaign and the McCain campaign at the time that both had been hacked by China. But what was their game there? The game then was for intelligence purposes. So they didn't use it to take what they call, you know, the community active measures. They didn't use it to influence the campaign. They just wanted to learn the thinking of each of the campaigns. So what a difference, you know, between then and then what you see Russia do in 2016. It must have been hard when you were there for a number of reasons. It's all in the book. Some of it was, actually, most of it wasn't the technical side. There were breaks, but getting the right people's attention and just prioritizing this. Can you imagine how much harder it is now when not all sides of the national security rope are pulling? Or maybe, I'm overstating that, and maybe the reports that you read of uh, the White House itself downplaying or trying to muddy the waters aren't really that effective. But it seems to me it would be a lot harder. Well, look, you know, you see, we just saw it this week. I mean, only in, only in America do you have something like the worldwide threat assessment, this um, tradition where the heads of the intelligence communities in a public setting yeah. say what they think the top threats are to Congress. And that group, there's so many dedicated career professionals as intel agents, as members of the military, as law enforcement, prosecutors. It was fantastic uh, working with them over the years. And I think what you're seeing is they're chugging along and doing their job. Right. It doesn't matter what the president tweets afterwards. He's not having a real effect operationally. It didn't seem that way this week, right? So it's not good in that, you know, especially when like in Helsinki, it's not good when the, the, the leader of the free world stands next to Putin and says, I don't know, he says he didn't do it. My guys say he did do it. I don't know who to believe. That, that does not help. But does that filter down to the people who were doing your job or the people who were even under you? Are there actual people who are tasked at fighting this who 
somehow get 30 other things to do on their plate instead of this? Or do they not hire as many people as they should have because of the message coming out from the top? What's the real world effect? It seems like in, in the real world, they are plugging away and bringing phenomenal cases with incredible detail. And we're just seeing case after case, right, that allows them to reach this this conclusion. So they're doing their jobs and, you know, credit to them. Not only are they doing their jobs ignoring that type of chatter, they were doing their jobs for about a month without getting paid for doing them. Yeah. So here's what I want to ask you about Mueller, since you know him well. First of all, the fact, the very fact that he chose you as chief of staff with your background in as as uh, computer hacking and intellectual property cop, does that say something about how much he understands this space? Yeah, he had a long time interest in this space. And in fact, the uh, when you're a prosecutor at the Department of Justice that specializes in this area, you're called a chip. Uh, computer hacking, intellectual property uh, prosecutor. And that comes from when he was U.S. attorney out in San Francisco and then later head of the criminal division. Now, Bob Mueller being who he is, I think he had no idea that there's this show called Chips with like people wearing short shorts. So uh, I might blame him for the name. I don't think that part was on purpose. But he has long had an interest. And he even had a book about one of the first uh, foreign spy rings that hit Berkeley by a guy named Cliff Stoll, who tells a first-person story. And that book was still assigned in 2006 when I went over to the computer crime. They had a bunch of these old copies of it sitting around, and it was because Bob Mueller had made them all read it when you came on board. So long-standing interest in it. And he saw really that this was going to be the new threat, like terrorism was the threat that he was still organizing and transforming to fight. But the top threat to our country was going to be cyber in the future. And he wanted the FBI to get ahead of that threat. And finally, does he understand information beyond the kind of uh, high tech information you're telling me? Because it seems while at the, while simultaneously quite taciturn, he does seem to have narrative inside all of his charging documents. And also, I think that there is a method to his uh, lack of interacting with the media, which I guess has only happened once in that BuzzFeed case. But can you just talk a little bit about how he understands information and even, you know, communicating to the public when it might not seem he is communicating? Well, yeah. Number one, he has had a long, throughout his career, he's believed that cases should speak for themselves, that there's there's a way of getting your information out to the public, and it's not by holding uh, press conferences and doing press releases. And so he, he has to be the, uh, the most uh, buttoned-down and, and closed-mouthed director of the FBI in the history of the institution, and he was similar when he ran the the criminal division and at every stage of his career. So that's nothing new, and it's not unique to this investigation. But number two, a charging document can and should tell a story. And he's a, he's a lifelong uh, member prosecutor before he was director of the FBI, and I think he's he's quite familiar with using the indictment, the charging document to tell a story that you ultimately need to tell before a jury and also recognizes the importance of that is the vehicle in which it's appropriate under the rules and the traditions of the Department of Justice to make your case. John P. Carlin is the former assistant attorney general for national security. He is the author of Dawn of the Code War, America's Battle Against Russia, China, and the Rising Global Cyber Threat. Thanks so much, John. Thank you.
And now the spiel. President Trump spoke at right-wing Comic-Con, the CPAC conference last Saturday, and it was a stemwinder. Stemwinder, noun, an entertaining and rousing speech. Okay, maybe I'm using the word wrong because what we heard was not either of those things. Wait, here's definition two. Dated a watch wound by turning a knob on the end of a stem. Yeah, well, that, that, that one fits. He was a knob. He's tightly wound. And I think we're all pretty much at the end of our stems. Also dated. So much of this was dated, including references to the much younger women he and his cohort marry. He said, I've known your husband for 65 years. I say, don't say that. <laughs> I say, say 20, 25, 30. Don't say 65 years. Relatable and common to the Trump social set. And women and men, and I consider them totally equal, so I'm not going to say it's harder. For in fact, it's probably with the men I know, it's actually easier for the women to make the walk, right? That was the totally non-doddering, top-of-his-game commander of the free world talking at length about the inauguration, the January 2017 inauguration. Just as a note, we are in March, and not March of 2017. Because March of 2017, still dwelling on it, would have been petty. March 2018... Would have been bizarre. This is now March 2019, and by now it's Captain Quig in the strawberries time. Maybe Steve Martin and his thermos territory. Why do I keep going on and on about this? The president literally asked on Saturday, because I care. He said that. I care. And because the indulgent audience was giving daddy his medicine. They were lapping up and nodding along with his every utterance and mutterance. Now, you've probably seen clips or tape of his lies or outrageous statements. You probably saw him claiming that mothers give their daughters massive amounts, his word, massive amounts of birth control pills as they seek to cross the southern border. Maybe you didn't hear his impression of what asylum seekers say in trying to gain entry. And what is it that you want asylum for? Why are you coming to America? Uh, murder. She goes, what? Murder. Now that did loosely resemble a clip from Fox News where a Fox reporter interviewed a caravan member. But if you or I or a sentient being didn't know that going in, there'd be no way you could make sense of that. Also, it's pretty inaccurate and even, even a lie to that incendiary supposed piece of journalism. Here is what was happening. Donald Trump was speaking to a group who some of them get his references, but none of them, if they don't get his references, are going to press him too hard to clarify. And no one in that room would worry too much when he's not making any sense at all. For instance, let's dwell on this, his explanation of the North Korean summit that just went down. I really think what we're doing there is very important. But we actually had a walk, but I think we had a very good meeting. And in fact, when I came home, they put out a statement that actually uh, they were willing to do much less on the sanction front. But you see, that's not what happened there. So already, I think we're negotiating. I'll say it again if you missed it. They put out a statement that actually they were willing to do much less on the sanction front. But you see, that's not what happened there. So already we're negotiating. Look, I could play the parts before or after that. If you're after context, trust me, 
it offers less context than what I just played you. It's not illuminating. It's in blackening. He just starts anecdotes and he doesn't finish them. He launches into examples because they pop into his mind. He's not specific. And the crowd, the crowd cheers it on like he's Rickles on the couch with Carson in 78. Remember, they brought a man in, a sergeant, a drill sergeant, to teach some actor how to be a drill sergeant. The drill sergeant was so incredible that he ended up starring in the movie. And he should have gotten the Academy Award, by the way, but he didn't. That's because Hollywood discriminates against our people. You know the movie I'm talking about, right? What was that movie? You know the movie. I think that was Lee Emery in Full Metal Jacket, but why and who cares? And you couldn't remember the name. And you also couldn't remember the name Brian Kemp, who's a little more relevant to politics these days. I'm going to play you this whole chunk of the speech. Ask yourself this. Is it in the realm of possibility that Donald Trump, as he was talking at length about his, meaning Donald Trump's, great electoral victory in Georgia, is it possible he was able to recall the name Brian Kemp? but he just chose not to do it. Here, here, listen. Then we have Georgia, the governor of Georgia. Great guy. Where's Georgia? Great guy. Great guy. What's his name? He was losing in the primary by 10. I got a call from David Perdue and Sonny Perdue, two great guys. Could you endorse him? I said, let me check. And I checked him. He was a Trumper before Trump was a Trumper. (laughs) And I said, I love this guy. But can you name the guy? You named yourself twice there. Trump went on to tell a long anecdote about his, meaning Trump's, assistance in the election of Brian Kemp without ever actually saying Brian Kemp. But then he had an election against their star who followed me after the State of the Union address. I didn't think she was great. But she's their star. And who showed up? Oprah Winfrey. Michelle Obama and President Obama. And they campaigned for her and they worked so hard. And all our man had was Trump. Not even a name, just Trump. But we had 55,000 people show up. I said, you're going to win the election. He won the election. He won it fairly easily. He won by 1.4% for the record. He did. He did that. Him. That fella. Governor, Governor Guy. That gov. Gov guy. Come on, what is Trump going to say? Because you know what he's thinking. Not the black chick. That's what he's thinking the whole time. You know, the one who wasn't the black chick. The problem with most presidential speeches is that a broadcast outlet will not play lengthy excerpts or full clips because all that detail is thought to bore the audience. But with Trump, they can't play long swatches because it will have a different effect on the audience. It will confuse us. It will befuddle us. The effect will be to say, wait, I don't understand what's going on. But also, just play less of that. Give me less of that. What he's saying is not cogent. It makes me feel lost and uneasy. So yes, maybe if you consumed some news, as I did, you you did see some bursts of Trump's insight, like the clip about massive doses of birth control. That was out there plenty. Maybe somehow you were exposed to Trump's political acumen, as with his analysis of the Democrats. They vote in groups. Indeed they do. Maybe you heard the president refer to his failed negotiations with the North Koreans, which he positioned as a success. We got our great people back. We get our great, great people, and that includes our beautiful, beautiful Otto. Yeah. 
you got him back. You got him back in a coma and soon a grave. So maybe you heard some of those can't look away moments, but there was so much of the speech that just repelled attention. It's just unpleasant to sit with, well, Donald Trump, but anyone like that who speaks in clauses that go nowhere and who meanders and who relies on anecdotes that should prop up a point, but they just add up to a general sense of defensiveness and I'm holding a grudge and I'm mad at someone and I'm talking about something that we all want you to move on from. And when someone is like that in a just world, not so just that this kind of idiot wouldn't be occupying your time, but when someone is like that, you expect the audience he's addressing to somehow give him cues, okay, this isn't making sense, all right, fine, move on, please, this is indulgent and you're not helping us any. But no, there was none of this from our dear leader. I blame that audience of sniveling enablers. CPAC, founded as a conference of anti-communists and champions of freedoms, they've devolved into cackling mental patients, indulgent of, no, in the thrall of a person who makes no sense. So I do blame the CPAC audience for most of those two hours of pure drivel. At least when the right was filled with ideologues, they had ideas. Now the right is just the world's worst audience telling a doddering clown that he's a brilliant witticist. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname. You gotta watch them. They vote in groups. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcast. She counts as a success her not signing the creators of Muppet Vanished a 12-part series about the time Gonzo went missing. The gist, I legitimately count it as a success that I did not make a joke about the two finalists in the Chicago mayor's campaign, Lightfoot and Preckwinkle, as being hobbit names. What I did is I researched it on Twitter. I saw that three or four others had made that joke, and I said, hats off, but I shall not add to this. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.